0: Welcome to the Lymphoma Research Foundation's Update COVID-19 and Telehealth for Lymphoma Patients webinar. I'm PJ and I'll be the operator for today's call. During today's call, you will hear from expert speaker and you will have an opportunity to ask questions. If you have any questions during today's presentation, you can ask them at any time in the Q&A box on the webinar. As a reminder, this webinar is being recorded. At the end of the program, a link will appear on your screen. Please follow this link to complete the evaluation of the program and gain certification of attendance. If you are listening by phone, this link will be sent to your email at the end of the webinar. And now I'm pleased to introduce Jesse Brown. Jesse Brown is the Associate Director of Patient Education at the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Welcome, Jesse.
1: Thank you. And thank you to each of you for taking the time to join us today's update on COVID 19 and telehealth for lymphoma patients webinar. As a reminder, today's program will focus on an overview of telehealth in the U.S. during COVID-19 and beyond, including discussion of technologies and insurance coverage of telehealth. For more specific information on COVID-19 vaccines and more, please visit our webinars page to view our archived COVID-19 vaccines webinar from late April. We'd like to thank our sponsors of this webinar, AstraZeneca, Mallinckrodt, Genentech, and PharmaCyclics and AbbVie Company and Janssen Biotech. Before I turn the program over to our speakers, I want to briefly share some information with you on the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Access to expert disease information is so important, and we are thrilled to be able to bring you this educational program. Most relevant to today's call, LRF offers a variety of lymphoma-specific resources, many of which you can access at the bottom of your screen if you're utilizing the web link or via LRF's website at lymphoma.org if you're on the phone. The LRF helpline can answer your specific questions about lymphoma, as well as discuss relevant treatment options and clinical trials. We also offer the Lymphoma Support Network, which is a one-to-one peer support program for people with lymphoma and their caregivers. The Lymphoma Support Network connects patients and caregivers with volunteers who have similar experiences to help give others strength to meet the challenges they may have to face. We also offer a variety of publications that have been reviewed by lymphoma experts to ensure you've accessed the latest lymphoma information. We have comprehensive books on understanding NHL, HL, CLL, and the transplantation process. Our mobile app Focus on Lymphoma is an award-winning app that provides patients and caregivers access to comprehensive content, as well as unique tools to help manage your disease. Finally, we've launched our COVID-19 Learning Center to support lymphoma patients and caregivers through this challenging time. Please visit our Learning Center for access to webinars, articles, and other resources specific to COVID-19. I really hope you'll take some advantage of some of the great resources and services that LRF provides. If you have questions regarding what you've heard about today, or if you need information about relevant treatment options and supportive care resources, you can reach out to the LRS through our website at lymphoma.org or by calling our helpline at 1-800-500-9976. We have a wonderful program planned for you today, and I'm honored to introduce you to Dr. Brian Link. Dr. Link is a hematologist and oncologist at the University of Iowa Healthcare. He's also a professor of internal medicine. In addition, he has served as an expert speaker on numerous patient programs for LRS and since on our Scientific Advisory Board. Thank you so much for speaking at our program today, Dr. Link. I'll hand the talk over to you.
2: Thank you, Jessie, uh, and welcome, everybody. Um, as indicated, today we're going to talk about uh, telemedicine for the care of patients with lymphoma or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. A pretty interesting topic, a relatively new topic for most of us. Uh, Let me just give you some perspective. Uh, As Jesse mentioned, I'm a hematologist-oncologist at the University of Iowa. I'm a member of the LRF Scientific Advisory Board. Um, My uh, practice is uh, exclusively involved in the care of patients with a variety of lymphomas uh, as well as chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And a little bit about our practice environment. Uh, So we're a university-based tertiary care center, but we are uh, in the southeast part of Iowa, which is a relatively uh, low-density population. As an example, there would be community oncologists available uh, within an hour to the west, the northwest, and the northeast, and the east. Uh, but to the south, southeast, southwest, we would be the nearest oncologist for at least a couple hours for patients. So most of our patients who come from south of interstate 80, uh, we are their first oncologist or hematologist they've seen. And for many of the patients who come from north of I-80, uh, it's largely a referral-based, uh, you know, looking for second opinions and the like. So it's in that context, and, and like all centers, uh, we we were involved, we have been involved with telehealth uh, that was brought on in a relatively rapid fashion uh, based on the pandemic last year. So for the next 20-ish minutes or so, uh, I want to cover four topics or organize my thoughts as follows. Uh, I'll give you a brief update on COVID from my perspective as a lymphoma specialist, um, to cover many of the points you're curious about, although uh, we will be plenty of time or hopefully plenty of time for uh, the questions that will undoubtedly arise afterwards. Uh, I want to talk about the rationale for why telemedicine came into play last year. Uh, I will share with you some data on what we have learned about the value of telemedicine in the past year. And then on the basis of that kind of speculate a little on what's the rationale for telemedicine now that we're in May of 2021. All right, so first let's talk a little bit about uh, COVID. Uh, as of, and I realize this can be recorded and other people may be listening uh, later, but as of, of today, which is the middle of May 2021, uh, it's very fair to say there's been substantial progress on suppressing the COVID pandemic and its impact on uh, our population in the United States. And the, the three ways that I look at that each day are case rates throughout the country are down, but there are still 35,000 documented cases daily in the U.S. Hospitalization and ICU utilization are down even more than that, suggesting that among people who are infected, those requiring hospitalization or intensive care unit uh, use are down even more so. And death rates are down, yet there are still nearly 600 cases of of, of people dying from COVID documented uh, in an average day in the United States. And it's ironic that about a year ago, Uh, We were uh, often up in arms about the concept of two plane loads worth of people dying every day from this pandemic, and now many of us uh, seem somewhat relieved that we're down to to two plane loads, or the equivalent of two plane loads of of people a day dying from the pandemic. So uh, I I comment only that it's been suppressed, not that it has uh, been eliminated. Now, there are several presumed reasons for the improvement over the past several months, First of all, I have to point out, viral illnesses are seasonal by nature. Uh, For years, influenza would be worse in the winter and better in the spring and summer, so I have no doubt that's playing a part of this. Number two, I also have no doubt that the effective vaccinations um, uh, are playing a very important role in improvement, and I am hopeful that as uh, more and more people get vaccinated, the improvement will continue, and and maybe we won't see quite as bad a bump uh, next winter when viral illnesses would expect to flare again. Uh, Death rates are down a little bit because of modestly improved treatments for those who do get sick, but I would emphasize I think that's been only a modest improvement and that there's still a substantial risk when people get sick. And then maybe or maybe not, there's improvement because of improved acceptance of social distancing uh, over the months. Uh, But I I also think it's fair to say that further improvement in the above statistics is broadly expected, at least for the next few or several months. I think the great unknown is what's going to happen when viral season uh, comes back. Now, how does this relate to lymphoma patients? Well, I can't give you those same metrics specifically for for lymphoma patients. Uh, Nobody, to my knowledge, tracks number of infected lymphoma patients on an average daily basis. We are part of a a National Institute of Health uh, project here at the University of Iowa, where we are globally reaching out to all of our cancer patients and asking them on a periodic basis if they've been affected uh, by COVID. Uh, And I can only tell you that very early data uh, has suggested that uh, our lymphoma patients have had a very low reported rate of infection. Um, But we know that, that that's too early to draw any conclusions. Uh, the severity of disease in lymphoma patients, we know is greater than it is for patients who don't have lymphoma. Now, most of the published data on that come from patients who were hospitalized in the first six months of the pandemic. And so what we know is that if a lymphoma patient gets COVID and is hospitalized, their average amount of time in the hospital is longer, and they have a higher likelihood of dying than patients without lymphoma who are hospitalized. We still don't have a very keen uh, real-time data on among all lymphoma patients infected, how likely are they to be hospitalized, Uh, nor do we know if hospitalization in 2021 would have the same implications as hospitalization back in 2020. But nonetheless, I think it's fair to say that uh, for people who are infected, Uh, most lymphoma experts would acknowledge that their concern for a severe uh, infection and and even possible death from infection is is greater than for people who don't have lymphoma. On top of that, though, we know that people who either are currently being treated or who were recently treated uh, for their lymphomas are more likely to have a severe outcome than people who are not currently treated or whose last treatment was uh, a number of years ago. The topic of vaccination in lymphoma patients is very uh, common at all of our visits throughout clinic today. Um, And I think it's very fair to say that uh, there's a consensus among all of us that vaccination in lymphoma patients are safe, that vaccination in lymphoma patients are probably helpful uh, but it is uncertain uh, if the vaccination is as effective in a lymphoma patient as for the general population. There's two ways to measure that. Uh, the most important way to measure that is to measure the number of infections that uh, vaccinated lymphoma patients get. I haven't seen any data, well, I've, I've, I haven't seen any concerning data on that topic yet. An easier thing to measure is uh, we can draw blood from people who've been vaccinated and we can look for antibodies that show uh, one measure of whether they amounted an immune response or developed immunity, and that's looking for antibody levels. Now, that's only one measure. It is not by any means the only measure of immunity, but we do know, it's easy to measure, and so we've done that, and we do know That lymphoma patients and chronic lymphocytic leukemia patients who get vaccinated do not have the same antibody levels, uh, and it's quite a bit of a difference compared to uh, healthy individuals who've been vaccinated. Now, that same study, uh, and the largest one so far came from Israel, where people were vaccinated relatively quickly. That same study, though, however, pointed out that in these same patients, they had not yet seen infections in people who've been vaccinated. So we still have concerns that perhaps uh, the vaccination is not as effective in patients with CLL lymphoma, but only based on the blood measurements, not yet based on infection rates. And likewise in that study, it was documented that people who were under active treatment had lower levels of antibody than people who were not under active treatment. Uh, So we still uh, provide uh, advice for caution in our uh, lymphoma patients who've been vaccinated. We encourage them all to get vaccinated. We really encourage them to make sure their surrounding daily environment is vaccinated to the point that they have influence over that. Um, And then, um, but we remind them that they're probably not as protected as everybody else and that uh, The degree to which they experience freedom from uh, social isolation and personal protection uh, equipment probably depends on what's happening around them, so they should be aware of uh, the environment of those who they work with, whether they're infected, and and then certainly what case rates are doing in their own uh, communities. Okay, let's move on to to telemedicine, which is the main topic of today's uh, discussion. Uh, What's the rationale? Why did telemedicine show up in early 2020. And this is not at all unique to lymphoma care. And I would emphasize that telemedicine was initially conceived, at least in our environment, not so much to protect you and other immune compromised patients from having come to the hospital as it was to preserve the hospital and its resources and its personnel for a potential tsunami of COVID cases. Uh, We were under a very real uh, unknown situation. We were very concerned that if people started coming to our hospital, that it would infect uh, our staff and our uh, workers and our doctors and our nurses and our pharmacists, and that as an institution, we just wouldn't be able to provide care for anybody. And so in in it was not so much we think it's a bad idea for the patients to come here as much as we're not sure it makes sense for anybody to come here uh, if if we can all possibly uh, avoid it. And we were very worried about how much of our resources we would need to devote to the care of patients who were infected with COVID. Um, and then the secondary objective, as I put on the slide, was to kind of maximize social distancing to protect patients and, and, and the concern of potential cooties. That even if you came here in the middle of the night, we were concerned if you touched the doorknob early on, uh, that, that you know maybe that would lead to the spread of infection as well. So. Subsequently, we've obviously learned that touching the doorknobs does not seem to be uh, much of a factor. We also learned that uh, uh, we were able to not only care for our COVID patients, but also provide care for a number of our other patients as well. But, but throughout all this, even in the worst of the worst, for our lymphoma patients, when they needed to be seen, our hospital said, that's fine, bring them in and, and have them be seen but just be very selective on who needs to be seen or who actually needs to come to the hospital. And for the rest of those patients, try and utilize telemedicine. And then shortly thereafter, in March of last year, Medicare agreed to pay for telemedicine visits, and we shouldn't decrease, We shouldn't underestimate the importance of that. Uh, hospitals are businesses, and, and so if the visits were paid for, then the hospital said, great, uh, why don't you do as much telemedicine as you can? And the other keen example was that uh, privacy regulations, which are very uh, controlling in a hospital environment and how much we do remotely, uh, they were suspended uh, for virtual medicine encounters. So we didn't have to fear uh, somebody else um, tapping into our system and getting access to private health information because we were reaching out over the internet. So now that we've had a year plus of telemedicine, what have we actually learned? And there's been a lot of Uh, research gone into saying, well, gee, does this telemedicine work in the long run? Is it a great idea? The easiest thing to measure is patient satisfaction. So there have been a few large studies of patient satisfaction, and it's very clear in all the surveys that patients who get telemedicine, and again, this is broadly across medicine, not just lymphoma, uh, remain quite satisfied with telemedicine. Uh, in one large survey that included literally thousands of patients in California, 97% were satisfied or very satisfied uh, with their telemedicine encounter, and 84% were very satisfied. 64% of the patients in that survey actually preferred the telemedicine to their in-person visit, and I want to emphasize this is across all medical visits, not just lymphoma patients. However, Surgical and non-surgical departments were said to have similar satisfaction. The satisfaction improved over the course of 2020 as systems and people got better at using it. It was found that patients who used smartphones or tablets had higher satisfaction than desktop computers. That logging in ahead of the appointment following a phone reminder from the hospital increased satisfaction And that the biggest detriment to satisfaction was the same as it has been for years and years and years, and that was if the patient had long wait before they actually got to meet their their physician. When looking at physician satisfaction, not quite as much data. Surveys have suggested about 75% satisfaction. And the summary would be the physician said, well, it was better than no contact at all. But there was clearly some confusion and concern, as there is in our own environment, about the ability uh, uh, to practice or to to contact somebody in a different state as to whether or not it's covered by licensing. In our environment, we got a temporary waiver to reach out to our patients in Illinois, Wisconsin, those who had wintered down in Florida or Arizona. uh, But... But that has since been rescinded, and we are told we are not allowed to practice medicine to people who aren't in the state of Iowa currently, although sometimes that becomes a don't ask, don't tell phenomenon. Here's another picture on your uh, slide that that is a a different survey. This is a survey that came out of Sloan Kettering, a practice environment notably different than our own, and you can see that um, they asked a, a couple of questions. Yellow rep means that the patients loved the answer. Blue means they liked the answer. And then uh, orange or dark blue or green said, eh, fair to middling that I was happy. And then each question has the office visit on top and a telemedicine visit on the bottom. And so a real quick survey would say that the yellow lines, which means I thought this was a great visit, are very similar between the office visits and the telemedicine visits. And that's true for the friendliness of the physician, the explanations given by the physician, the concern shown by the physician, the ease of scheduling the physician, and the likelihood of recommending this practice to somebody else. So, again, that suggested patient satisfaction very high. And, in fact, if you look at those same questions then, uh, red means I really didn't care whether I had no preference between an office visit and a telemedicine visit. Green is, I thought the office visit was better. In blue, I thought the telemedicine visit was better. As you can see, most patients didn't care, and there were maybe equal numbers that preferred office to telemedicine. Telemedicine was much better at treatment-related costs, travel, lost wages, time away. Uh, Office was better for the quality of the visit, the personal connection with the physician a little bit. but overall preferred visit type was somewhat neutral to slightly advantaged telemedicine. But what was learned about the quality of care provided? And this slide is left blank on purpose because uh, we don't really know if the quality of care uh, was as good or not. We know that patients were satisfied. We know that some physicians were satisfied, felt it was better than nothing, but we don't really know was there a better outcome related to lymphoma or or any other medical condition in general? So, What's the rationale for telemedicine here in mid 2021? Um, I think there's some important caveats, right? So what's specific to lymphoma patients? And uh, lymphoma patients sometimes are under period of observation where they're simply going through a, a checkup to see if all is well and sometimes they're undergoing treatment. And uh, an important part, at least of my evaluation of lymphoma patients, and I'll I'll want you to reflect on your own experience with your physician or physician assistant, nurse practitioner, is whether or not that uh, evaluation includes a physical exam. Speaking personally, simply for myself, uh, I'm a little bit older. I was born in the 1960s, and I was trained in the 1980s, and I was trained a lot to rely on uh, both my, my in-person assessment of how the patient looks and and then on examination what I find. And often, as you know, we're, we're checking your lymph nodes or other tumors with physical examination, and that's something that's very challenging or impossible to do with telemedicine. So, so I think it's easy to say telemedicine will never fully replace office visits and probably shouldn't replace office visits for patients who are actively undergoing treatment. We don't really have a fear of you coming to see us anymore. So so for that standpoint, we're not motivated to necessarily do telemedicine. But it, it potentially, we could learn a lot from the patient satisfaction information as a great option when talking or visiting is all you need. It avoids travel, which is huge. It allows uh, loved ones to join via conferencing without missing work. So that's uh, can be very useful. Um, and it still optimizes social distancing. As the beginning of the presentation, I pointed out that even though hopefully many of you are vaccinated, um, it's not yet time for you to, to relax your social distancing in general. And so there still is that potential advantage. But all of this forces us to evaluate, when is talking enough? Is it true for some of those uh, how are things going visits that talking can be enough? Maybe indeed that's the case. You can always get your lab work done locally and have that uh, provided by email or or fax. Um, But I I think we need to evaluate when are conversational visits enough to assess symptoms versus when do we feel the need for a physical exam. Physician engagement and patient satisfaction certainly need to be uh, addressed equally. Um, I know I would go crazy if I had to to, to still do entire days of telemedicine. I miss that personal engagement. Um, And and so ultimately, I think the the long-term use for telemedicine is likely to be variable from center to center based upon the dependency of a practice for travel. I'm in several discussion groups where we we talk about the impact of COVID and uh, smaller community groups where patients don't have to travel as far uh, are not doing much telemedicine anymore. The, The biggest referral centers, some of the referral centers in our country, Patients fly from all over the country or all over the world to get there. That was, had a huge impact uh, on their ability to continue to maintain a practice, and so they were more aggressive about utilizing telemedicine and probably will be in the future. Um, but ultimately, I think insurance coverage and payment opportunities will have a lot to say about this option uh, because, as I said, you know, even though this is a practice, uh, it, hospitals are also in, not going to be able to provide services that, that aren't paid for um, by uh, by third-party payers. And so I think that's a great time to, to take the program back to, to Jesse, who's going to introduce our second speaker, who will have more to say about that latter topic.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Dr. Link. Um, I'm now honored to introduce Monica Bryant. Monica is a cancer rights attorney and chief operating officer at Triage Cancer. Um, we're so excited to have you be here with us today, and I'll now turn the talk over to you.
0: Thank you so much. So, as Jesse mentioned, I am an attorney, which is sometimes confusing to people on uh, medical related webinars. But I'm here to talk a little bit about telehealth and navigating insurance. I'm certainly going to echo some of what Dr. Link has said. Um, but really, what I want to do is take a step back and start with a review of health insurance, because what I typically find is that most Americans don't really understand the terms that are being thrown around in their policy, they don't always know how the rules apply to their particular policy, and it's also valuable to understand these things because we have an opportunity now in this country to change our insurance every year. So if you feel like you don't necessarily have a great handle on insurance and how it all works, you are certainly not alone. There are three main places that we get health insurance in this country. The largest number of Americans get their health insurance through an employer. The next largest group gets their insurance through the government, primarily through Medicare and Medicaid. And finally, the smallest number of Americans get their insurance directly from a health insurance company. But regardless of where you get your health insurance, there are some terms related specifically to cost that we all should know. And so starting at the top, uh, there is a cost just for us to have health insurance, and that's your monthly premium. You are going to pay that premium whether you see the doctor or not. It's like having car insurance all year but never filing a claim for an accident. But then there are some additional costs that you incur when you actually go to use your health insurance. And the first is your deductible. This is a fixed dollar amount that you have to pay each year before your health insurance company starts picking up their share of the costs. The amount of your deductible is going to vary plan to plan. Some people have a $500 deductible. Some people might have a $5,000 deductible. But it's going to be that fixed dollar amount. So, what's the insurance company's share? Well, it's the cost share or the coinsurance. So, two words for exactly the same thing. And this is a percentage. So, you pay this each time you get care, and once you've met your deductible, let's say, for example, you have an 80-20 plan. That means your insurance company is responsible for 80% of your medical costs, and you're responsible for 20%. But many policies also have what's called a co-payment. And this, again, is a fixed dollar amount. It's going to depend on your policy. But you pay it each time you get care. So it's very common, for example, for there to be a $25 co-payment when you see the doctor or a $10 co-payment when you pick up your prescription drugs. And then finally, your out-of-pocket maximum. So again, this is a fixed dollar amount. And the way that you get to your out-of-pocket maximum is by adding up everything you've paid towards your deductible, everything you've paid towards your co-payments, and everything you paid towards your co-insurance. So, it's literally everything you pay out-of-pocket except those monthly premiums. Now, typically, insurance companies are only going to count payments made towards in-network providers. So, that's the first important piece. The second important piece is that some employer plans may actually carve things out of their equation. So, for example, the deductible might not be counted towards your out-of-pocket maximum. So, it is really critical to check your own policy to figure out how they count your out-of-pocket maximum. So, here's an example of how this all works. Meet Dan. Dan has a plan with a $2,000 deductible. It's an 80-20 co-insurance. And there is an $8,000 out-of-pocket maximum. Dan hasn't received any medical care yet for the year, but he goes into the hospital and ends up with a $102,000 hospital bill. So what does he have to pay? Well, the first thing we always pay is that deductible. So that leaves $100,000 of his bill left. His coinsurance is 20%. In dollars, that's $20,000 but because he has that out-of-pocket maximum of $8,000 and he's already paid 2,000 towards his deductible, he only has to pay another 6,000 to hit his out-of-pocket maximum. And at that point, his insurance company pays 100% of his in-network care moving forward. Now, I am not suggesting that $8,000 isn't a lot of money. Of course it is. But when we stop to think about what we would be paying out of pocket without the out of pocket maximum, or certainly without health insurance, it starts to feel a little more reasonable. And the reason this is so valuable and why I'm talking about it today is because we can as consumers start to plan around a worst case scenario for what we're going to have to pay. So when we talk about telehealth specifically, there are actually different kinds of services we could be talking about. So one of the most well-known types of telehealth is a live video conference, like a Zoom, a two-way conversation that you're having where you can see the provider and the provider can see you. Uh, It could certainly take the place of in-person visits, but it might be a precursor to an in-person visit. But there are some other types of telehealth services That are different. So, an e-visit is something that is more like um, an email system that happens via a secure portal. So, many hospital systems now have portals that you can log into and they're HIPAA compliant and you have to jump through a few hoops, but then you're able to message your provider and your provider is able to respond. Typically, these are only going to be available for. Certain types of services. Uh, For example, uh, let's say you uh, had a urinary tract infection and you've you've been prone to getting them and you just wanted to ask your provider if they could call in a prescription for you. That might be an appropriate type of thing to do via e-visit. And then the third kind of very common type of telehealth is a virtual check-in. And this is more about just a quick check in, it could be certainly with your doctor, but it might also be with the nurse or physician assistant, and you might be able to use your phone to just have a quick check in conversation without actually having to go to the doctor's office so I will acknowledge that this is not an extensive list. These are three types that Medicare specifically refers to, uh, and you may also hear the terms telehealth and telemedicine being used interchangeably, but they're not exactly the same thing. So where does somebody actually get telehealth services? Well, certainly, as Dr. Link alluded to, it could be through your regular provider. So your normal doctor that you go and see all the time, and now instead of seeing them in person, you're doing it virtually. But there, over the last several years, have been an influx of what I sort of call standalone services. And these are just two examples I I pulled out. But they are akin to sort of an urgent care type setting where you would go, where you're going to go see a provider that you've never met before, and you're just going to get services for kind of an acute situation. And these standalone services can actually be relatively affordable. So you can see these two are both under $100 for the visit. They will bill insurance, but even if you don't have insurance, it's this fee. And well, I wouldn't necessarily say it would be appropriate for cancer treatment, many people have other types of medical situations where maybe seeing their provider isn't Uh, Possible, And one example of that is if you're traveling in another state um, or maybe even another country. And if your insurance doesn't have coverage for out-of-network providers, it actually might be more affordable for you to use one of these services for that acute need than it would be to actually go and see a physician in person. So, the original concept of telehealth was to try to provide basic care to individuals who lived in rural areas and who tended to be underserved. But what studies over the year have shown us is that telehealth is super efficient and cost effective to deliver some pretty basic healthcare services. There are certainly some benefits to providers and patients, um, and we have the, the research to, to show even pre-2020. But even with all that good news, there are still some pretty significant barriers to accessing telemedicine. So I would say that there is an overall lack of knowledge and understanding about how to access telehealth, what types of telehealth somebody could access, um, and what types of healthcare. Are appropriate for a telehealth visit. Certainly, the technology can be challenging. So, if somebody doesn't have a smartphone, a tablet, or a computer, maybe they're not going to be able to access the video services that are sometimes required for these visits. Maybe they're on a monthly data plan where they don't have enough data for an extensive video call. Or, maybe they just don't have access to broadband internet, like almost 130 million Americans. So technology continues to be a barrier. Another barrier, as Dr. Link alluded to, are the federal and state laws. So many of the laws regulating healthcare were passed long before there was even a World Wide Web. And they certainly don't account for using technology for medicine in this way. So, for example, there are sometimes challenges with HIPAA's privacy rules. Um, Now, as Dr. Link mentioned, there's been some exceptions to these rules during COVID, but they can still be a potential issue depending on what type of service you're receiving. The Controlled Substances Act is a uh, federal law that imposes a uh, prohibition on online prescribing for certain controlled substances without first having an in-person evaluation. So that's a barrier depending on what your needs are. Now again, exception in light of the pandemic, but once we're no longer in a state of emergency, this is gonna become an issue again in terms of accessing telemedicine. And then the state licensing laws. So most states require healthcare providers to be licensed in the state in which they're practicing. But as we know with technology, you could be connecting with patients in a different state. Um, and we see this certainly being a from in border communities where someone might live in one state but work in another state. And so maybe they have health insurance in one state and a doctor in that state, but they live in another state. I will say almost all of the states have issued emergency rule changes due to the pandemic. But once again, once that state of emergency ends, we don't quite know what's going to happen. And then finally, the cost. There is very little uniformity with health insurance coverage for telehealth services. So with all of these barriers, it begs the question, were people actually using telehealth? And it turns out it was pretty limited. So in 2016, uh The studies, the numbers vary slightly depending on what studies you look at, but around 0.8% of patients were accessing, who had, who were entitled to access telemedicine, were using it, and and that was in 2016. The number went up slightly in 2018 to 2.4%, but still pretty limited. So perhaps unsurprisingly. The number skyrocketed, relatively speaking, to 23% of adults having admitted to using telehealth services last year. And, of course, we don't have a proven causality for that jump. So, certainly, it could be that more people were hesitant to venture out and exposure and all of that Uh I wonder if more providers, like Dr. Link mentioned, were telling their patients, hey, this is an option for you. Don't come into the hospital. We can see you virtually. Um, Was it that the rules were relaxed so it became easier to access these services? My 100% guess in that right now is that it was probably a mixture of all three factors. But even with increased access, the health insurance coverage is still a barrier, And the coverage varies dramatically based on where you access your insurance from. So plans uh, that are sold by private insurance companies uh, don't have a bright line rule as to what if they have to cover telehealth or not. Prior to COVID, 41 states and D.C. had some variation of laws governing reimbursement to providers. Uh, but there weren't really rules about what patients were charged. We also know that certain employer plans are considered self funded and so they're not actually insurance at all, and there were no rules about coverage for telehealth. So, since COVID, we've certainly seen a patchwork of changes. So, some insurance companies are providing coverage, but only if the visit, the need for the visit, was due to COVID. Some were allowing coverage for preventative services or mental health care services. Uh, Some insurance companies were eliminating out-of-pocket costs completely if people were using telehealth instead of going into a facility. Uh, Certainly, we saw other changes like relaxing the rules, so for where somebody could be in an appointment. For some companies, uh, pre pandemic, they said you can't be using telehealth services at home. But if, for example, you are living, you're at an assisted living facility, you can use telehealth. And those kinds of rules started to be relaxed due to COVID. A good number of the companies would only reimburse for a video appointment prior to COVID. And then relax those rules to allow for some, you know, phone call only type appointments. So basically, the moral of the story with the individual and employer plans is it's all over the place. Medicare uh, had some changes as well, and uh, in fact, a study came out this morning that showed that more than one in four Medicare beneficiaries had a telehealth visit between the summer and fall of 2020, so that's a pretty big jump. Now, how how Medicare is going to cover telehealth depends on which type of Medicare you have. So, if you have original Medicare, telehealth services are covered under Part B, which is your medical insurance. And with Part B, there is an annual deductible and a 20% co-insurance. And that's the same for in-person and virtual visits. However, COVID, or excuse me, Medicare did decide to waive some of those co-payments for certain services. Now, if somebody, instead of Part B, receives their medical insurance through a managed care Medicare Advantage plan, those are actually sold by private insurance companies. And while CMS did relax the rules for Medicare Advantage plans, there wasn't a requirement that they cover telehealth services. So you might have a friend that says, oh, my my appointment was covered uh, and you're wondering why yours wasn't. It could be that they had original Medicare and you have a Medicare Advantage plan. And then finally, Medicaid. So Medicaid provides coverage to individuals who have low incomes and sometimes low asset levels and have to fit in another category, like having a disability. But what's interesting about Medicaid is, while it's a federal health insurance program, it's administered by the states. Therefore, there are wide differences in coverage between the states for telehealth. I would say across the board, prior to COVID, Medicaid recipients were not allowed to access telehealth services from home or have audio-only, phone-only appointments. And when you stop and think about the individuals who have Medicaid coverage, these are particularly problematic barriers, because we're talking about individuals with disabilities who might not be able to travel, and those with low incomes who might not have smart devices or internet access. Thankfully, many states made some emergency exceptions to their rules and are expanding access to telemedicine, but it is so state-specific. So all of this is to say, to set up the one-line That is, you shouldn't assume that you do or don't have coverage for telehealth if you're interested in accessing it. You have to contact your specific insurance provider to ask how they will or won't cover telehealth. But I wish it was that simple. I think you need to be incredibly specific in your questioning. For example, you can't just call and say, do you cover telehealth? Because the coverage might depend on the type of medical service you need. So it should be something more specific like, do you cover telehealth for an urgent care need or mental health services or whatever it is that you need? Certainly asking if a prior authorization is needed. Questions around cost. So it could be that all the costs are going to be the same for in-person visits, but it might not be. And then I think it's incredibly important to understand if the costs that you pay out of pocket to access telemedicine are going to count towards your deductible and your out-of-pocket maximum. I think it is very important to understand if there is a certain uh, service or network of providers that you need to use. Uh, So, for example, there were some companies that said, we will only cover telehealth services if you use this specific app. And then I think, finally, once you have all the answers to these questions, the last question needs to be, Are these the answers normally, or is this just an exception due to COVID? Because that will be really helpful for you to understand how you can utilize these services moving forward. And then even if you've asked ahead of time and tried to cover all your bases, you might still be faced with a denial of coverage. But the good news is you might not need to take no for an answer. Generally speaking, as consumers, we have the opportunity to appeal denials of care And unfortunately, not enough consumers are doing that. So we know that of the 40 million plus claims that are denied by insurance companies, less than 0.2% are ever denied. So with that, uh, I just want to let you all know that in addition to uh, LRF's amazing resources, Triage Cancer has a host of free resources as well specifically around the legal and practical issues that arise, like health insurance coverage, and employment and appeals. Um, and so I certainly encourage you to check those out. And we have two new resources specifically on appeals, including one of our animated videos that's available in English and Spanish, And a uh, sort of choose-your-own-adventure tool on cancer finances, uh, on appeals, that will lead you through a series of questions, and then based on how you answer those questions, it'll take you to the most targeted information. So with respect to what's next, your guess is as good as mine. There are certainly really significant practical reasons why telehealth will continue to be useful. both in and out of cancer care, the, the travel piece, it reduces childcare, it's less time away from work. We also suspect that there's gonna be additional treatment adherence and potentially um, more uh, addressing of side effects because people will be able to talk to their providers on more of a real-time basis instead of waiting until the next appointment. So all of these emergency exceptions that have made it easier for us to use telemedicine theoretically go away as soon as the president declares the state of emergency over. That being said, there are multiple pieces of legislation pending in Congress, including proposals to make some of these exceptions permanent, certainly to expand Medicare coverage and to expand the scope of the type of providers that can provide telehealth services. So if you're interested in learning more about those specific bills or about how to uh, advocate for these changes, you can certainly check out our advocacy page at triagecancer.org. So with that, I'll turn it back over to Jesse.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Monica. Um, Just as a reminder, uh, please keep your questions as general as possible so that the entire audience can benefit from the answer. Um, We'll take as many questions as possible, but if you have a question that does not get answered, you can always reach out to the LRF helpline at 800-500-9976, or you can contact Triage Cancer as well um, as they listed their resources. Our first question um, from online is for Dr. Link, and this person asked, one of the limitations of telehealth is the lack of ability to touch the patient. Have any strategies been developed to do procedures such as lymph node exams during the telehealth sessions?
2: I saw that question. I'm glad it got asked. Um, I'm not personally aware of any uh, technology uh, that would replace lymph node examination, of course, except uh, going to the scanner, the CT scanner or the PET scanner, so it, it would be reasonable to say that if um, the patient was scheduled for imaging as part of this visit anyway, that that may reduce the need for a physical examination on top of things. doesn't mean it eliminates it, but it could reduce it. Um, uh, obviously, I would not be comfortable with the notion of saying, well, let's just always do CAT scans instead of um, physical exams because of the cost and, and potential toxicity of of multiple CAT scans. But I'm not aware of anything like uh, an ultrasound attached to the computer that can be run over uh, the groin or the armpit and provide information. Uh, not to say that it won't happen yet in our lifetimes, but but I don't think we're on the cusp of anything there. Great. Thanks, Dr. Link. Um,
1: Monica, someone asked, if I use the patient portal to ask a question to my doctor, is that billable? And how do I know how much to expect if so? So it really is going to depend on how the
0: provider has it set up. Uh, Typically, and I'm generalizing here, but generally those types of encounters are not billed. Uh, but if you are questioning that, that is definitely something to talk to your provider
1: about. Thank you. Um, Dr. Link, our next question for you is, sorry, I think there's a little bit of an echo. Is it possible to participate in a clinical trial if there's the only treatment option via telemedicine?
2: <laughs> uh, oh, boy, you should have seen the scrambling that went on to accommodate patients who were already enrolled in clinical trials uh, or who were considering clinical trials. Um, Obviously, the the first rule of any clinical trial is the patient's uh, best interests, their well-being, their safety, and and clinical judgment come first. And you can always violate any clinical trial uh, guideline with those principles in mind. But the best way to, to conduct a clinical trial is to follow rules so that you can interpret the information you get from it. So there was this balance of every center and every doctor was making their own decisions on which patients they were advising not to come in to get physical examinations when the study uh, rules had been they should get physical examinations. So uh, there was a lot of effort on the part of uh, the researchers and local um, research uh, ethics boards about which rules were okay to break and not to break. Um, so I think what we'll learn from all this is that many of the things we have historically done may not be as critical that, that we have done in person, may not be as critical, and I do think that people will be able to be involved in clinical trials with less in-person contact. Uh, I, I I doubt that There are many trials yet that would be comfortable uh, enrolling patients who have no personal contact in which it's all via telehealth. But I do think that uh, clinical trials moving forward will forever uh, probably recognize that we can get away with less in-person demand for for face-to-face contact.
1: Great. Thank you, Dr. Link. Um, Monica, can new patient encounters receive care via telemedicine, or is it only for patients that have three-year known medical history in that practice? I know you touched on this a little bit, but they just wanted um, for you to touch on that again.
0: So it depends. It depends on where you're trying to access telemedicine and what their rules are. So if, let's say, you're trying to utilize telemedicine with your oncologist, that facility, that practice might have a policy in place that they're not going to do telemedicine for new encounters. But if you are trying to access telemedicine for sort of a um, isolated situation, like an ear infection or a UTI, then that's something where there are those standalone services that you will talk to someone that you're probably never going to speak to again, Um, but you're going to get the medical information that you need and potentially maybe a prescription. So it really just depends on the reason for accessing the telemedicine, how you're accessing the telemedicine. And then, like, what service you need.
1: Great. Thank you. Um, Our next question is for Dr. Link. Are there specific subtypes of lymphoma where telehealth appointments really are not suitable in any situation?
2: Uh, Say that again. Are there certain subtypes of lymphoma?
1: Yeah, where telehealth appointments really aren't suitable for that situation,
2: such as spontaneous lymphoma. Yeah, I think um, in our cutaneous lymphoma clinic, we tried to rely a lot on photographs uh, instead of physical examination. Um, Again, I I, I wasn't comfortable that I was giving my best when when we were doing photograph assessment as opposed to physical personal assessment. Um, And I would emphasize that... it depends also on where in the course of the disease or the evaluation one is. Uh, for an initial visit, um, again, I'm, I'm never comfortable offering an initial comprehensive assessment without being face-to-face. Um, I just don't think the danger of going to the hospital, it, it all warrants um, bypassing more thoughtful, comprehensive face-to-face interaction. Um, as opposed to, boy, somebody's been in remission for for four years and they're here for their fifth-year visit, um, that's a much easier visit to consider uh, converting to a, a non-face-to-face encounter. So I don't know that the diagnosis uh, would uh, influence my decision as much about face-to-face as much as where in the course of the disease are they, are they under comprehensive evaluation? Are they undergoing active treatment? Are they in relatively late uh, survivorship uh, surveillance with a long history of doing well?
1: Great, thanks for clarifying that. Um, Our next question is for Monica. Um, This person wanted to clarify, do some plans exist where insurance benefits are different for telehealth and in-person appointments as far as copay, deductible, et cetera? Yes.
0: So, if you have an individual insurance policy that you've purchased from a company like a Humana or an, one of those companies, then they can basically—I mean, there are certainly rules—but they could say, for this service, your copayment is going to be X, and for this service, your copayment is going to be Y, and all of that should be laid out in a document called the summary of the of benefits and coverage or the SBC. Um, And if you have questions about that, like that really speaks to what I was saying about calling your specific company and asking about your specific plan and how they are handling
1: telehealth. Great, thank you.
2: Um,
1: We have one more question for Dr. Link. Sorry about this feedback here. Do you you think telehealth could ever be appropriate for a second opinion on my lymphoma diagnosis?
2: I want to emphasize I am speaking only for myself. I'm not representing the LRF or any society. Um, Again, I personally would never offer a comprehensive evaluation, either as a first opinion, second opinion, or third opinion, uh, without encountering a person face to face. That's just me. That's my style. I'm I'm a little bit old fashioned maybe. Um, and 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 so it's not something I would choose to seek for my own health care and it's not something I choose to offer, but that's I want to emphasize purely my individual opinion.
1: Great. Thank you, Dr. Link.
2: Um, our, we have
1: a second for one last question for the day, which will be for Monica. Were changes in FSA-HSA contribution rules for employees revised in the last COVID relief bill? Are we allowed to change our contributions? So it seems to be impossible for me to answer a question without starting with it depends.
0: So it depends (laughs) what type of FSA you're talking about. So the latest COVID relief bill, which was the American Rescue Plan Act, did actually increase the amount that you could put in for dependent care flexible spending. It didn't uh, increase for uh, healthcare FSAs. However, it did allow for some more flexibility in using funds. So any unused funds for plan years of 2020 or 2021 are able to be rolled over. And that is a... uh, new development. So typically FSAs are are more of like a use it or lose it type situation. So we actually have a blog on this at triagecancer.org if you'd like more specific details other than what I've just given
1: you. Great. Thank you so much. Um, And thank you to both of you for uh, joining us on today's call. Uh, This was really great and very timely and and really informative. And everyone will be able to listen to this call. Um, We'll archive it on our site for um, six months to a year after this. So if you have any questions or you want to look back at the resources, um, you can definitely do so. Um, and we'd also like to thank our sponsors again for making this program possible, AstraZeneca, Genentech, Mallinckrodt, and Pharmacyclists, and Abbey Company, and Janssen Biotech. Uh, please remember, if you have any additional questions or you'd like to be connected with someone else who has been impacted by lymphoma, you can always reach out to the LRF helpline at 800-500-9976. Also, at the conclusion of this program, you'll receive an email prompting you to complete a program evaluation. We ask that you please take a few moments to complete this, as these are really important for helping us to ensure that we deliver the most useful and meaningful programming to you. And with that, I'd like to thank you all again for joining us, and have a wonderful day.